0: farther than I'm usually able to go and spend some time toward the end of chapter number four. And I certainly want to try to encourage you in what the Lord did the last week. I think all of us, uh, there was uh, maybe a truth you knew, but it was just exploded across the scene in perhaps a new way. And if you, uh, how many were helped by the message uh, that uh, Brother Vaughn preached on preaching to yourself or uh, talking to yourself? Okay, that was very helpful. I'm going to tell you what that truth was, renewing your mind, renewing your mind. And for years I've known that wonderful truth about renewing your mind, but the practical application and of course biblical paradigm that he gave us about preaching or talking to yourself uh, was very helpful in renewing your mind. And uh, I uh, I trust that will be a help. And actually, uh, how, uh, how many have with you at least a pen and a piece of paper? Can I see your hands, please? Okay. About halfway through the message, I'm going to ask you to use that. For those that aren't going to have to use a mental pen and paper, that's dangerous. But um, uh, I don't know what you'll remember. But I do want to challenge you with something out of the text that will I think help if you have a piece of paper or a pen. So if you have a neighbor nearby in a moment that needs that uh, and you can supply it, I hope you will. Uh, but I just want us to, to look here at. Um, uh, a wonderful passage of scripture that talks about rest. Several years ago in a, another state, uh, my wife and I spent uh, several hours with a mother and a daughter that were in trouble, uh, spiritual trouble, and also had allowed some sin issues into the daughter's life, and it was a kind of a crisis situation. We spent several hours, and we had a, had a whiteboard or a chalkboard, I can't remember which, and we were up in a room all alone, my wife and I, uh, trying to encourage and help them, and we were doing a lot of things on the chalkboard trying to help them. And I remember you're trying to grapple, and if you've ever counseled at all, you're many times praying as much as you're counseling, uh, just saying, Lord, how do I help these people? And um, I don't know, somewhere along the line while I was counseling them, I asked them this question. I said, is your life characterized by rest? Uh, not that you don't have unrest, but it's char- is it characterized by rest? or would you say it's characterized by a lack of rest? I will never forget their answer because it was so spontaneous, it was like they didn't even have to think about it. They both readily agreed, No, my life is characterized by a lack of rest. Now if you would have to answer that question this morning, you know what, really I'd have to characterize my life by lack of rest. Something is not right spiritually because that's not the way God wants us to live, not at all. And I believe what you're gonna find here at the last half of chapter number six, is uh, three horatory subjunctives that help us live a life of rest. How many know what a horatory subjunctive is? Raise your hand, please. All second-year students? Where are my second-year Greek students? Raise your hand, please. Raise them high. Do you guys know what a horatory subjunctive is? You better learn that. That's a simple thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, Boy, Dr. Paul, you're going to have to get on those oratory subjunctives, okay? Okay, crack the whip on them, okay. Um, uh, These, uh, many of you, maybe you don't know this, I'll just give, since this is a Bible college, I'll help you out here. Uh, In the Bible, if there's injunctions that are encouraging you to do something, pretty much there's two ways. Number one, in the imperative mood. I shouldn't ask how many know what the imperative mood is. I'd get (laughs) really worried if you didn't know what that is. But it's a command. And that, of course, is a little more forceful But a horatory subjunctive is almost like putting an arm around somebody and says, let's do this. Let's do this. Okay, let's get this done. And it's a little more uh, of an exhortation is the idea. And uh, so that's what you find here, three of these exhortations. Obviously, they need to be obeyed. But they don't have the the blunt confrontation of an imperative mood. Uh, It's a little more of put your arm around you, let's do this. This is important. So you find these three oratory subjunctives here in the last part of chapter number four that I believe help us understand how to live a life of rest. So for those that are titling the message, it would simply be how to live a life of rest. And uh, we're going to begin by just uh, uh, kind of making an overview, and I can't spend a lot of time here for time's sake, but in chapter number three, uh, you find an illustration of a person living in unrest. And it basically, con- uh, basically comes down to one thought, and that is they're living a life characterized by unbelief that manifests itself in disobedience. Interesting in chapter 3 you find two Greek words that are translated faith or believe. One of course is our well-known pistis uh, that we uh, translate believe, faith, etc. Of course faith if it's in the noun form. But there's also the word apetheo uh, uh, or whatever, I can't, I, don't, I can't speak Greek. But anyway, uh, I can read it. But um, it has the idea uh, of an unbelief that results in disobedience. Some newer translations translate that word disobedience. Now, let me just say a word about newer translations. Occasionally, I will uh, consult uh, different translations. And the reason I do that, I view them as commentaries, okay? Because sometimes they'll translate something and then I want to go back. Why did they they translate it? Is that interpretational or was that good exegesis? And sometimes it's highly interpretational. And sometimes it might be decent uh, as far as helping you understand uh, the the word or whatever. It might help you in a word study, et cetera. So, um, but sometimes that word is translated disobedience. So, basically chapter 3 is, somebody's made this parallel. Chapter 3 of Hebrews is an equivalent to Romans chapter 7. It's a chapter of defeat. It's a chapter you don't want to live in. And I can preach several messages out of three, and I do preach them in, out of three, because it basically is um, using what happened there at Kadesh Barnea as an illustration to all believers, don't do what the children of Israel did, and draw back an unbelief, and end up being carcasses in the wilderness. Don't do that. I'm overstating it quickly here. And it's using that history to help us not go the same route. In fact, look at verse number 12 there, one of the peaks there in chapter 3. It says, take heed brethren, that's us, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He's exhorting them not to do what the children of Israel did. Now, in the chapter 4, if Romans 7 is illustrated by chapter 3, then Romans 8 would be illustrated by chapter 4. So chapter 4 now moves into a chapter of victory and a faith. Okay, look if you would please at, uh, let's start at verse number 1, and this is not the message here, here's another hortatory theref- uh, subjunctive, let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left uh, us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. God says there ought to be a healthy fear in your life to live a life in unrest. Now I realize you're in college and you're learning how to work this thing, and uh, honestly, uh, if I could put it this way, I've said this yesterday, talking with somebody here in the audience. That really maturity is consistent faith. It's learning to trust God, and I've told my daughters this. It's learning to counsel yourself out of your problems. And what God is saying is, uh, you need to have a certain healthy respect and fear about the fact that you'll never, if you 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 never enter into rest, that'd be a tragic position for a um, believer to be in. It really would be. And certainly any of us in this room uh, wouldn't want to live there. But that's what he's exhorting. Look what he says in verse number 2, for unto us was the gospel preached. Of course, uh, uh, here uh, Paul is again referring somewhat to, uh, he's going to refer back to Moses. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, talking about the people Moses preached to, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Won't for time's sake go into it. Verse number 3 is key, for we which believed Do enter into, all say it together out loud, we enter into, we believe, do enter into rest. Okay, so real simple, how do you enter into rest? And the answer is, by believing. Now, the reason you enter into rest by believing is because that's what believing is. Believing is rest. We've all seen the illustration, I think somehow somewhere it's been done here, where uh, somebody falls backwards and people catch them. Now, if you really believe they're going to catch you, what will you be? And the answer is at rest. If you're not sure they're going to catch you, you will not be at rest. <laughs> uh, the other day, just a few days ago, I was slipped on the ice. And I mean, when I slip on the ice, I do it well. I mean, foom, I mean a total body check on the ground. And uh, uh, it kind of hurts. You know what I'm talking about? But by the time you hit the ground, the next, the next 24 hours, I'm sore in places I didn't I think. Didn't think would, I should be sore because they didn't hit the ground. You know why I was sore? Because my muscles tensed up. I mean, absolutely tensed up. My neck muscles are sore because you tighten up. You know, that, that moment when I was falling, I was not at rest. <laughs> <laughs> I was in total tension. Why? Because there was nobody there to catch me. And uh, that's the idea. Uh, it'd be like... Uh, if you were to have a third or fourth story of a burning building and the policeman, uh, the fireman came with a big, huge, you know, net below. Now how many of you would be at rest about that deal of jumping? Now, probably we jump because that's a better alternative than staying in. And, and, uh, you know, that going out that way. But, um, uh, the point is if you were absolutely 100% sure they're going to catch me, you'd be completely at rest. You'd say, Hey man, this is fun. <laughs> and you'd free for all into that deal. Okay. But. That's the idea. So, what God is saying is when you're living a life of faith or believing, you're going to be entering into rest. You're going to live a life where there's a there's a rest, restful spirit. And I hope, young person, you understand that's where God wants us to be. Now, one of the problems we have in your, your culture, you hear this addressed from time to time, and I mentioned this guy Unwin who uh, did this uh, this book back in the 30s, and uh, it's just a, st- a stunning study. I haven't read him, but I've read a guy who condensed Unwin, and it was very stunning, because uh, Unwin was a rationalist in the sense that he, he just believed that, you know, empirical data gave you an understanding of what is. And, and, uh, but he said that if you, and he did the study of these 86 cultures, and those that threw their morals off, uh, within three generations, the culture was destroyed. And he said, either the culture just came down so low, most times it was amalgamated into another culture. In other words, somebody defeated them, overran them, which is really stunning because we've just begun generation number two. Now, I'll be dead before this thing's, uh, your culture is messed up, but you probably won't be. So you'll see it lived out. But the second stage is so interesting because it basically points out that, that religion is go- goes, Another thing goes as rationalistic thinking. In other words, uh, empirical data no matter matters. In other words, well, could I put it this way? If I could put it, put it out to you to help you understand this, uh, really what truly is would be this thinking. Because it is, I feel. Because it is, I feel. But your generation is, I feel, therefore it is. Now, when you flip that, you're in trouble. You're in trouble physically, and you're in trouble spiritually. Because the Bible is not based on, I feel, therefore it is. The Bible is based on, because it is, therefore I feel. See, that's how the Bible is based. That's how life is based. In other words, just because you wake up one day and feel like you're a millionaire, that really doesn't mean you're a millionaire. Because if you wake up one day and feel like you're the opposite gender doesn't mean you are. See, See, that's how our culture is so messed up. And again, Unwin, just a, a rationalist, uh, who studied culture, found this to be, he, he predicted this would happen, though he's never lived to see it. Obviously, in, 30s, it in the 30s when he wrote this book. And uh, it's uh, kind of interesting to me that a few people have resurrected it because they're concerned about where our culture is going. It's going to absolute cultural destruction is where it's going. So you have to understand that some of these issues that are so politically correct are actually a signs that the culture is d- disintegrating. And this is again not a preacher, this is a man who best I can tell is an atheist, and he only believes in empirical data. And it's a very, very interesting. But uh, as a result of that, your generation has a tendency to overemphasize how you feel, even in your Christian life. How, he, how many of you would admit that one of the problems in your Christian life is your feelings? <laughs> yeah, see? see, you're very much a product of your culture, and I am too. And so we understand that many times we have, to, we have to fight against our feelings because our feelings do not determine what is. You can feel lost, but if you're genuinely born again, it's like this. If you're doubting your salvation, genuinely born again, doubting your salvation, and you get in a car wreck and die, where will you go? You go to heaven because your salvation is not based on your feelings. Aren't you glad about that? <laughs> See, it's based on what is. So uh, let's go now, and with that understanding... I believe these last three let us, these last three horatory subjunctives, can be a help to you. Let's just, we may not finish them today, but we do have tomorrow, so let's, uh, let's go to verse number, our first one that I want to deal with, the last three of the chapter. There's, like I already mentioned, that we saw one right there in chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 4. But down to verse number 11, it says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man should fall After the same example of unbelief, referencing back to chapter number three. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Now, that seems strange, doesn't it? We've talked about this before, laboring to enter into rest. That kind of seems like a conundrum, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like a little bit of an oxymoron there? I'm going to work hard to enter into rest. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word there, obviously, one one, uh, definition would be give diligence to. Another one I thought was fascinating when I did a little bit of study this morning was impatiently expect... That seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Impatiently expect. Now, what are we in trying to impatiently ins- expect? Well, obviously, the point here is how do you enter into rest? Let's go back to chapter number four, verse number three. I'm just going to ask you the question. You, you, just, you just come back uh, with a vocal answer. Okay, how do you enter into rest? By? By believing. By believing. By believing. So if you're going to give diligence standing to the rest or you're going to impatiently expect what are we dealing with? Well obviously we're dealing with giving diligence to nurturing your faith. An idea of ex- expectation is faith. Now impatient may not be the best word because it has imp- implications of sin or uh, unbelief, but I think the idea is in in the Bible there are often uh, tension truths. For instance, I like to use the word holy Desperation, because they seem a little attention. How can desperation be holy? Well, whenever you're dealing with truths like this, there are often tension truths that can help you. You've heard me say this before, but for review's sake, and also to help us in this passage, the two tension truths, when it really comes to faith, are two things. In other words, really is number one thirst. In other words, you are not going to have rest until you want it. There has to be thirst, I will pour water on him who is thirsty. There's a Bible principle that if you seek him you will find him, if you thirst he will pour the water out, if you're hungry he will fill you. It's a Bible uh, picture from Genesis to Revelation, we find it everywhere. You shall seek for me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, Jeremiah 29, verse 13. Okay, you find that, that picture, or that metaphor, uh, many different places. Okay, so the point would be on one side is thirst. Uh, John 7, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me. Definitely a part of that equation. But the second one is rest, or faith, or trust, rest. Now, thirst and rest seem to be at odds with one another. But let me just simply say, thirst and rest are both important. They're tension truths. Now, if you let go of one of those truths, you will fall into the ditch. Now, the ditch on the side of thirst would be overactivity. The ditch on the side of rest would be passivity. (laughs) Now, understand, we already know meritorious thinking is not biblical thinking. So, we're certainly never earning anything from God. It's all by faith. But the point of thirst is, it is a sense of, I cannot go on without God. I need God. I want God. He's the most important thing to me. And if anything happens in my life, if I meet God, everything else will be okay. I've got to know God. That's the one side. But if you only live on that side, you're going to probably get into the ditch of overactivity. You're going to get into meritorious thinking, and you're going to be in trouble. Then the other side, of course, is rest. That's a a confident expectation. That would be that impatient expectation. God is going to meet my need, because He said He would. If I seek Him, I am going to find Him. If some of you out here may be wondering, I'm not finding God like other students are. I want you to walk out of chapel to realize, walk out and start praising God. God, I am going to find you because you said I would. You're going to fill me because you said you would. You're going to meet my thirsty spiritual needs because you said you would. See, see, both truths are very important, and this is the idea of trying, I believe, trying to be found in verse number 11. In other words, get diligent about the deal, have thirst, get hungry about the deal, about entering into rest, which we know is by resting. You enter into rest by resting, isn't that amazing? Okay, You, you enter into rest by trusting. So these are two very important truths. Now if you go back to the verse before, it gives us a little bit of a clue about how this happens. Look at verse 10. It says, for he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. So I believe that gives us a nuance of you're basically uh, ceasing from your own works. And now you're living in the fact of His enabling works. Okay, can we say that? We're ceasing from self-dependence, and we're now living in God-dependence that results in dependent obedience. Christ's obedience being fleshed through our lives, that is what I believe is a mark here of the restful life. It's not self-dependent works, it's God-dependent obedience works, if we could put it that way. Okay, now, uh, right after this, uh, this, this uh, horatory subjunctive, he, he gives that uh, a reason here, or something that can help us. You say, well, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I give diligence to entering to rest? How do I impatiently expect to enter into rest? Okay, how do you do that? Okay, well, he, he says in verse number 12, a very familiar verse, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, honestly, a whole message could be preached on that. But for time's sake, let me just simply say this. You will never enter into rest and stay there without the Word of God. See, what the Bible is saying here, if you want to give diligence to entering into rest, it's all going to be based on what is. The one thing you can count about in the Bible, the Bible is not, uh, how do I say this, it's not what we feel about it. The point is, It is. The Bible is. What is it? It's alive. That's what this passage says. And it's powerful. And that's not the word dunamis. That's the word anybody know just off the top of your head? Anybody know what Greek word it is there? Powerful. It's not dunamis. We often think of a dynamite. It's the word energe, which is the word we get energy from. Okay, so the Word of God has that spiritual energy, that life. Now, I think every one of you who have been saved any length of time can know there's been a time when you were in spiritual need, hopefully multiple times, you went to the Word of God and all of a sudden a verse just came off the page. You ever to ha- that ever happened to you? It just lifes you. It brings divine energy into your soul. You know you've heard from heaven. Because what is, therefore I feel. <laughs> in other words, the joy and the peace that comes is based on the truth that you have read and been illuminated to your soul. So the word of God is obviously if you and I are going to live restful lives it's an, obviously a major part. We know that it's in a part of, but here's what I'm trying to say. Whenever you get a little bit of I don't have time and you don't spend enough time in the word of God, don't be shocked when you stop stop living in rest. It's what fuels it. We talked about that before. Faith is fueled by Bible truth. Now just a couple other things here before we move on on this one and It says, uh, uh, it's the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I don't confess to know everything about that, but for years I've been a little bit puzzled about the piercing even of the dividing asunder of joints and marrow, because that sounds physical. One commentator pointed out that the word marrow uh, can sometimes be used figuratively as your innermost being. And I don't know if that's true or not. I I guess that would be an interpretational issue as far as I'm not sure if that's the interpretation to take here. I've done enough study on it yet. But the point is the Word of God pierces down to the innermost being of who you are. It gets down where you need help. Have you ever thought to yourself, you can't figure out yourself? How many have ever thought to yourself, I don't think I can figure out me? You ever been there? I'll tell you what I love to do when I'm really in one of those moments like, God, I can't figure out how I got here, I can't figure out how to get out of here, I can't figure out what's going on. I have found in those moments you can trust God because He knows how you got there and He knows how to get you out and He knows you better than you do. And I have found sometimes I have no idea how I got out of there, I just know that Bible truth is what got me out of the pit. See, the Bible, that's what the Bible says. It goes down deeper than you know who you are. Now, I don't know about you, but I think, and I realize some commentators would not agree with me on this, it would be an interpretational difference. I do believe there are some commentaries that would agree that the dividing asunder of soul and spirit is that the Bible helps you separate that which is spirit and that which is soul. Now, why is that important? Now, this is going to shock you because you're just some of you just getting started on theology, but you need to know this: soul is not spirit, and spirit is not soul. Now, of course, I'm a triadomist, but in my thinking, spirit is not soul, and soul is not spirit. Now, you say, what are you, what, what are you, "Why do you bring that up?" Because I bring that up is if you think the soul is spiritual, then you're going to you're, you're, you don't understand spirituality. Now, where does God connect with us? God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him. In spirit and in truth. So God connects you with you in your, in your spirit. Every one of you, when you got saved, your spirit was regenerated. It came alive. That is where God meets with you. Now, I believe the spirit can affect the soul. The soul can affect the, what the old timers called the circumference, the perimeter. <laughs> okay, the, the physical. But it all starts with the spiritual. In other words, when our spirit gets moved, it affects the soul, and the soul can affect the perimeter, the physical whatever, however you want to put it out there. No doubt about that, but they're different. Can you be moved in your soul, but not really be moved in your spirit? And the answer is, oh yeah, yeah, you can. Uh, For some of you that are musicians, and for some of us we would use that word very lightly, others of you really are musicians, you can enjoy things in your soul that I can't enjoy. I don't know why, I guess I wasn't, uh, I wasn't inculcated with that, uh, that same thing. My daughter's going to enjoy things, I can't. And I'm glad that they can, because I'm probably the poorer for it, okay? But, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, your soul can enjoy things. You can enjoy a good concert, a music, a, a good piece of literature. And you can just think, be enjoy and just enjoy it. Now that's not necessarily wrong. Uh, I think it can be wrong, because the Bible says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, hang out now, which war against the soul. Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, he that doeth it, destroyeth his own soul. Now I don't understand everything about it, and I'm no psychologist even from a Bible perspective. But I do understand that soul is not spirit, spirit is not soul. And you know what the Bible does? It cuts in between. Now here's what I fear your generation your generation will listen to a recently written piece and not all recently written pieces are wrong, but be moved in their soul and think it's spiritual. And the danger in that is they don't understand true spirituality. So they will actually live on a very low level spiritually because they think the soul is spiritual. Now, how many times has a kid come out of a wild Christian contemporary concert? and said these words, I feel so close to God. Now, if a kid were to say that, I would start asking them questions to see if they are close to God. Like, how do you treat your parents? Oh, like dirt. <laughs> Have you got it right with them? No. <laughs> okay, you start asking them questions like this, and you find out. Okay, you find out that they're not close to God. So, if you go to a Christian concert, and you feel close to God, when you're not close to God, you know what that's called? Deception. <laughs> you see... Because feelings should always be based on truth, and when they're not, you're deceived, and I'm deceived too, when that happens. And your culture is fine about that, because if I feel close to God, what does our culture say? I am. Doesn't matter about the facts. If I feel close to God, I am. I don't. No matter if I don't have a relationship with the parents. Doesn't matter if I got hidden sin in my life. Doesn't matter if I don't spend time with God. If I feel close to God, therefore I am close to God. See, that's the danger of this whole mess of subjectivism, which is only going to get worse, okay. And we're talking, obviously, even in the physical realm, uh, but obviously it affects the spiritual realm as well and, and our cultural realm. But, um, but back to the, to the idea here. So the Word of God is like a sword, and not only does it penetrate deep into your heart, I believe that's definitely a part of what it goes to where you cannot even understand who you are. It deals with the very issues that you have. You all have certain inclinations, dispositions, and some of you, have you ever thought to yourself, man, am I messed up? I can't even figure it out. Okay, the point is the Bible can help you. <laughs> you can go deep where you don't even know who you are to figure out what's going on, and it can help you figure everything out. Okay, but it also can divide between soul and spirit, and help you understand this is spiritual, this is soulish. Soulish is not necessarily wrong. it could be, if the fleshly lust can war against it. There evidently can be some issues of the soul that do have nuances of sinful uh, or fleshly uh, issues, no doubt about it. But the soul in and it of itself may not necessarily be wrong, but it's just not spiritual. So you have to understand, that's why, uh, and some of you in the class. Uh, Mr. Van Daniel Van played that little segment that by Alistair Begg, how many of you saw that segment? Okay, and are in that class. And uh, talked about going to contemporary service and the guy goes, hey, how do we feel today? Okay, that, that is where our world is. It's all about feelings. And it really, truth is not the issue. And what God is trying to help you understand is if you feel nice and happy, but you're not right with God, the word of God cuts a line between that and says that soul, this is spirit, you're impoverished in your spirit. You've got problems on this side. So the Bible is necessary if we're going to live a life of rest. And again, a whole verse message could be preached on that, but for time's sake, let's move uh, to verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Now this is talking about our God. God sees everything about us. He knows everything about us. And again, the amazing thing is, because it's clearly coming on the heels of this, the Word of God is is the tool He uses to help us, uh, uh, help deal with those things that He sees, that sometimes we don't even see. But that brings us to the second horatory subjunctive, and this will probably be the, I'll have to probably stop halfway through on this one, but look what it says there in verse number 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now, that seeing is actually the uh, participle having, and it is in the same uh, agreement with the main verb there, uh, hold fast. So, uh, it's the idea of, uh, uh, because we have this uh, high priest who's passed into the heavens, I want you to do something. Hold fast your confession. Now, the word confession is the same Greek word used in 1 John nine. It starts with the preposition H-O-M-O, which obviously is used in our culture. Uh, how many had milk this morning? Don't raise your hand, but on the on your on your cart.